Welcome to the Tech Buzzword of the Week, Wodas.com, the online IT encyclopedia and learning center. I'm Alex Howard, assistant editor at Wodas.com. We invite you to visit Wodas.com, the secret of those who always seem to know it all, and sign up for the Word of the Day newsletter. Learn one new thing every day. The topic of today's podcast is zero-day exploits, the online security threat that's been making headlines again and again this past year. For more on the subject, I turn to online security expert Steve Fallon. Steve is the director of the Rapid Response Team at WatchGuard Technologies, an online security firm. One of the original architects of WatchGuard's popular live security service, Steve has spent the last seven years researching, writing, and speaking about network security with a small to medium-sized enterprise. To learn more about zero-day exploits, I Skyped Steve earlier this week. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'll read you a very short summary of our definition for zero day and then let you comment on what you think needed to be added there. All right. So our version is that a zero day exploit is one that takes advantage of a security vulnerability on the same day that the vulnerability becomes generally known. In this scenario, there's zero time for the software manufacturer to address the vulnerability before it's been exploited, no time to issue a public advisory, and no time to issue a patch. Ordinarily, after someone detects that a software program contains a potential exposure to exploitation by a hacker, that person or company can notify the software company and sometimes the world at large so that action can be taken to repair the exposure or defend against its exploitation. Is that about right? What would you add to that definition? I think we're headed in the right direction. As it's generally been regarded in the security industry, as I've been exposed to it. A zero-day vulnerability is one which is unknown to the vendor prior to news of its exploitation becoming public. And what that means is that a zero-day vulnerability may be known far and wide within the hacker community. It, it may not. It doesn't have to be. There are some hackers which keep uh, vulnerabilities which they or exploits which they develop uh, against specific products secret so they can continue to exploit them. But in general, zero day refers to a vendor having zero notice in, in which to, to develop a patch. They would still have an opportunity to say, uh, as many vendors have done over the years, uh, we've just become aware of this. We understand it's being exploited in the wild. Uh, we're working on developing a patch. All of our customers here are some workarounds for you, and we'll let you know when we've got some software to download. So that would be, that would be the vulnerability side. The why of such a vulnerability uh, might come to light in this way. Uh, could be any one of a number of things. Somebody wanting to make a little make a little mischief or a lot of mischief. Somebody with a uh, with a mission against that particular company, or somebody gets tired of it being a secret and feels bad and wants to tell the vendor. Most of the zero day attacks I've heard about and read about have targeted Microsoft Office applications like Excel or Word or even PowerPoint and internet media players and now iTunes has been targeted as well. Is it accurate to say that almost any application now, which is internet-facing, is now vulnerable to a zero-day attack? I think any application, period, without any qualification, is vulnerable. But there's a difference between uh, possibility and probability. The more 
contact an application has with untrusted sources of input like office files or media files, MP3s, movies, that sort of thing, the more likely it is that they would be exploited. What can our audience do to prevent or minimize the impact of these zero-day exploits? Well, there's three classic strategies, two things that you can do at the perimeter of your network and one thing that you can do pretty much everywhere else. The first strategy is make sure that your perimeter defenses, your firewall, uh, whatever else you happen to be using, are only allowing traffic which is known to be good. It's following the rules for traffic. It looks like traffic should look. So, for instance, if you see a packet with all of the option headers enabled, that would never occur in a realistic network scenario. And so perhaps what you need to do is deny traffic from that IP address for a period of time or not allow those packets to pass. So there's this notion of enforcing or, or allowing through the perimeter only that traffic which is known good following the rules, not trying to, to play games with the protocol uh, or you know any other rules that might pertain to that particular type of application traffic. The second strategy is to look for known bad attacks. And this is sort of the signature-driven approach. Now, inherently, signatures are reactive to a, a specific threat because obviously you can't write a signature until you know what the threat is and what it looks like, how it might manifest on your network. So they're reactive. On the other hand, they can be well-written signatures, can be very precise. In other words, you can, you can pick out this particular attack from one that would be similar to it. So that would be the second general strategy. Now, put together, those two can be very, very thorough where you have one side of your security posture says, we're not allowing anything that doesn't meet spec. We're not allowing anything that doesn't seem reasonable. I don't care what it is. In that way, you block attacks which you don't necessarily know about specifically. Yet for those attacks which you do know specifically, it's this attack and not something else going after my IIS server, you have a signature which can identify that attack and stop it. So those are the two that you would do at the perimeter. The third one, the third strategy that you would use throughout the rest of your network is to be really, really aggressive at uh, downloading, testing patches as they come out and then applying them as rapidly as possible throughout your, uh, your organization. Those three things working together can form a pretty effective defense. There are ways to even make it stronger by modifying what you allow in to a network uh, based on what you think the threat level is. So, for instance, Microsoft today announced uh, patches to its Office suite. There are vulnerabilities in Office which would allow an attacker to take complete control of a client computer. It might be a smart idea to tell your perimeter security defense to not allow Office document types in until you've got all of these patches fixed. That would be one example of where how you would use the three uh, general strategies together. To, to improve your improve your network. Now, you discuss just now the differences between a perimeter strategy versus a core strategy. How do you factor in the proliferation of smartphones like Trios or Blackberries that often use mob mobile office applications and are often tied into the network through VPNs or through other tunneling applications? Do you have to be concerned about those mobile devices being subject to zero-day exploits as well? 
I think you have to be concerned. I don't know that it's something worth waking up at night in a cold sweat for, however. Those applications um, where their interfaces with the main networks are, are properly architected are no more troubling than uh, a teleworker would be. In other words, they are, from an architecture standpoint, presumed to be untrusted until proven otherwise. So, for example, you had mentioned uh, smartphones tunneling in back to corporate data resources, for instance. Uh, you would want to make sure that those smartphones, wherever they were, were tunneling in from outside the network and then place appropriate controls about what they could access and what they could not. So you would, you would address that specific type of threat with architectural measures and access control measures. Uh, as far as them being subject to uh, exploit, rapid spreading exploit, we're not seeing so much of that yet. I, I don't discount the possibility that that will, uh, or the probability that that will come about, but my sense is that there are many more easier targets that are more attractive to people who uh, do these sorts of things for fun and profit. And on that count, what are the things that would keep you up at night or wake you up in a cold sweat when you consider the security implications of zero-to exploits? The things that I worry about most are our end users who spend time in the field and are not going to be connecting back to the home office on a regular basis for software updates for their, their applications uh, like Office Today or their operating system or their browser, people who have taken it upon themselves to disable the security measures that their IT ma administrator might put on their laptop, because these are also the people that come back to the home office three or four times a year and walk around the firewall physically and plug straight in. I think the management of the remote threat or the traveling threat is, uh, is, one, of the, is one of the more challenging aspects of managing network security today on a holistic basis. Well, you've just described a perfect way that simple human error can create a penetration of your network, and I imagine that there are many others, for instance, not downloading the patches as you describe or setting up effective perimeter defense. Accepting that a zero-to-exploit happens at your organization, what can you do to recover? Well, a lot of the recovery phase will be dependent on what exactly happens. The steps you first want to take are stop the bleeding. Ask yourself, is this still spreading? Uh, if it is still spreading, where is it spreading? Can I shut down those network segments? Once the bleeding is stopped, you can begin to repair the damage. Clearly, you're going to want to make sure that you've got on hand the ability to either set back to a known state any, uh, any computers that may have been affected or to clean them up. The AV vendors are very good at providing cleanup tools for the viruses that they do detect. Root kits and other types of spyware are more challenging, but there are tools that most IT administrators should, uh, should keep around uh, as ways to address the threat from that standpoint. Once the systems are cleaned up and the systems are back online, uh, I think the, the next thing a responsible administrator would do would be to turn towards education. Let's look at why this happened. Let's talk to the people who were involved. Let's make sure that everybody is aware that, yes, in fact, their behavior does matter. They have the ability to impact the performance of the company as a whole because the network is a shared resource. 
and make sure those people are, are educated and strongly incented not to repeat what they did, presuming, in fact, it was human error. Do you see zero-day attacks increasing in the future, and if so, why? I think it is inevitable that the number of zero-day attacks uh, is going to increase over time. There is something of an arms race going on right now between people who want to exploit systems and people who want to protect them. The conventional wisdom says that so far the exploiter side is winning. There is a tremendous uh, economic incentive for, uh, to compromise systems, to build botnets, to obtain personal information. Much of these zero-day exploits that we've, uh, we've discussed are really being used as uh, gateways to computers to harvest personal information and to build those botnets. There are people who trade. You know, there's a, an underground market, if you will, in you know, credit card numbers and personal info and that sort of thing. So against that threat, we have large numbers of very dedicated professionals trying to protect against it. But that puts them on the defensive. And so the arms race will escalate, and each side will become more and more sophisticated. Interestingly, where we are also seeing is a trend towards publicly disclosed vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities disclosed by a vendor, uh, Microsoft, Cisco, uh, whomever, being exploited in a much more timely fashion as well. That indicates that there are you know, people out there that are writing exploit code and are challenging themselves to go and, and do it faster. So it's not just the effect of, surprise, guess what? Your application is vulnerable and I'm exploiting it. But it's also vendors doing the responsible thing, disclosing, providing a patch. But enough of a lag time occurs where uh, people aren't getting the patches installed, providing a window of opportunity for people, for other attackers, reverse engineering those vendor patches and writing exploit code. In addressing these different attacks and the different vectors for them coming in, it seems like software companies of every stripe, because as you've described, almost any application can become a vector for infection here and, and, and the subsequent issues there. It seems like co companies are in a double bind because either they can disclose the issue to the public and then have the race occur that you just described, where people are trying to attack the vulnerability as fast as others are trying to create patches for it, or they can sit on it, as many different companies have done in the past years, and then have their own developers try to create patches for it and hope that the issue hasn't been found. They, there's a variety of strategies for communicating the issues to the developer community, whether it's putting it into the knowledge-based documents, whether it's putting it out in emails, whether uh, it's simply calling security firms, uh, how would you envision the best way for any kind of vendor or software company that's subject to this issue um, to get out these issues? To, that should they be releasing them online? Should they be calling? Should they be otherwise communicating to security professionals to try to avoid these sorts of things going out? Well, I, I think Two things occur to me uh, uh, regarding that general issue. One is the way to get ahead of the curve from a general standpoint is to be more aggressive and, and attack. And, and what this might mean in, from a vendor standpoint is that you find out, you know, you find out that you've got an issue 
and you go out and you, you be aggressive about making sure that everybody knows you've got the issue and what the exact scope of that issue is. In some way, reduce the amount of lead time between when a vulnerability is publicly known and a patch is available and that patch is applied to the significant portion of your user base. Because that's really what's being exploited is the lag time there. I have a patch and, oh, the patch is not universally applied. So if you can, as a vendor, if you can go out and be aggressive and, and close that gap through your communication strategies down to as, as small a period of time as is practical, I think you've done a good thing. The sitting on the information uh, almost never turns out well in the end. You know, you might see some short-term comfortable comfort feeling as a result of that. But somebody's going to find out somewhere. And they're going to say, hey, how come you knew about this some months ago and it never got fixed? And the second thing uh, really drills down on a little bit about the communication strategy. And that is, uh, I'm a big believer that you go to where your people are. So companies who've invested in building a tight private community have a tight communications channel with their end users. And they can go out and reach out to those people very reliably and very quickly and say, hey, here's the deal. You need to come and download this patch uh, and, and apply it as quickly as possible. Other companies, such as Cisco, have invested heavily in maintaining a very public and open communications infrastructure. I think that makes sense for Cisco because their gear runs 70 or 80% of the Internet. For them, a private community would be just as big as the public community in many ways. Uh, and so they have adapted their communication strategy to who their customer base is. Uh, Microsoft manages very much a public disclosure model uh, of their vulnerabilities, but they're kind of tight about information prior to that disclosure. That's going to be what's, what's, what's working for them, and I think they've made some tremendous strides over the years uh, in, in managing vulnerabilities. Clearly, they're dedicating significant effort to it. So it, it really all depends on, on your audience as to, as to what level of public or private disclosure is, uh, is, is appropriate. I don't think there's any need to, to go and tell people about an issue with your product when nobody in the place where you're talking about it really cares. Well, for those that, that do care, the IT system administrators out there, those in charge of the corporate firewall or whoever is entrusted with the security of a network, what's the, the best strategy for them to adopt? At a minimum, you're going to want to subscribe to the list for your operating system vendor, for your switch vendor, and for your routers and firewall vendors. Those are the you know sort of the sort of the big infrastructure components, which uh, you'll want to monitor those uh, directly. So perhaps what the answer to the question is is that a hybrid approach uh, tailored to the needs of a given environment is going to be the one that provides the, uh, the most yield for the least amount of uh, effort or investment in time. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I am sure that our users are going to find all of those questions and those answers extremely useful. Thanks again, and uh, I hope that if we get some other sort of exploits in the future, we'll be able to get you on the phone again. Oh, we'd be happy to discuss them. Well, I hope you've learned something new about zero-day exploits today. Thanks again to Steve Fallon and WatchGuard for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about zero-day exploits and other online security threats, make sure to visit whatis.com or our sister site, searchsecurity.com, for up-to-the-minute reporting, white papers, webcasts, and analysis. Check out 
Search Security's Security Wire Weekly, too, a terrific podcast that reviews the week's security news. And while you're at whatis.com, don't forget to sign up for our Word of the Day and Buzzword newsletters. If there's something we missed in today's podcast, or if there's some other subject you'd like us to cover in a future podcast, let us know at editor at whatis.com. Thank you.